everyone. Another episode of iFreak Show. Today with you, uh, your host, Alex Bush. And we also have Sujin Ro on the panel. Hey, Sujin. Hi. Hi, everyone. And we have a very special guest, uh, Luis Ascorbe. How's it going, Luis? Hi, everyone. Good. So, Luis, we have you on today to talk about your um, talk that you gave at, what was it, engineering.sg? Oh, no, wait, I- iOSConf.sg, right? Yeah. With Headspin, optimize your mobile user experiences 24-7 for any application running on any device and any network anywhere in the world. Their AI-powered analyses track user experience metrics and KPIs over time from cold and warm starts to errors, crashes, and response times, and audio and video quality to biometric responsiveness. Headspin will automatically surface issues and the root cause information you need to optimize user experience for your product or service, providing actionable insights end-to-end across applications, devices, and networks. With the world's first global device cloud that uses thousands of real SIM-enabled devices on actual carrier and Wi-Fi networks in hundreds of locations around the globe with 100% uptime, Keep your mobile user experiences ahead of the pack and achieve mobile success with a unified proactive approach to testing, performance monitoring, and user experience analytics only with Headspin. Learn more at headspin.io. Uh, and the talk is about modularization, right? How, how, you broke, how you approached breaking down a monolith app into a bunch of modules. So, okay, but before we get into, into the topic. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your experience with iOS and so on. Um, yeah, so I started uh, like uh, nine years ago, more or less. Um, I did an internship on a, on a small company here in Spain. Uh, and then I went right into iOS development. Uh, then after uh, about I don't know, three years more or less uh, for in 2014, I moved to Barcelona and joined uh, a small startup uh, called Wallapop. Uh, there, I, I stayed the, the last six years. Um, we went from being only two guys working on an app uh, on iOS uh, to me leading a team uh, of nine iOS developers. And yeah, you, we, we, we went through a lot of changes, a lot of stuff um, making the app, you know, because uh, during you know, we're working five to six years on the same product, you can see how, how um, any decision you make on, uh, at every step has an impact afterwards. So yeah, more or less, that's that's what's uh, what's uh, my experience on on iOS programming. On the other hand, I also um, co-founded and organized a conference, a small conference here in Spain. It's called NS Spain, and it's usually every September. Uh, for I mean, I don't know if it's going to happen this year, but right, uh, there, there is some hope. I see. Interesting. So basically, with um you kind of went through sort of the stages of growth of your application, right? From sort of zero to one, just kind of, uh, uh, you said two people, right? Working on it. Yeah. And then yeah, exactly. kind of grow in the team, grow in the code base. And I, I think mm-hmm. uh, in the beginning of the talk, you mentioned like 700 lines of code, something like that, right? Yeah, 700,000. Yeah. Thousand, sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. That's a that's, that's a, a hu- big problem. Right, yeah, that's a huge code base. So, um, what was the kind of problems that you uh, encountered with such a large code base? Um, so, the, the thing is that we didn't uh, start modularizing right away, right? Um, we um, we had the, we have the problem of working on this huge code base, and then we decided to do it. The, the problems were that um, at, at Wallapop we were working on uh, on a squats, right? Like um, most most uh, companies and startups are doing now. And the thing is, when you work on a small, like on a, an isolated uh, part of the app, they say, you know, uh, delivery, for example. Uh, imagine that you have a delivery service within your app, 
when that team is working on that part of the code, trying to iterate uh, really fast on everything you do is super hard because um, you have to compile the, the whole app. Um, we, we didn't have like a huge um, build time for app. Uh, when 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 there, there was like a swift migration, uh, I think it was from three to four. Uh, we went from five minutes to 18. And afterwards, like I, I, I had to work on it uh, for two months and I lowered it from 18 minutes to four, I think it was. Is it, was and, that a cold build or a, a, a subsequent build with a cache? No, it, it was clean. Clean, clean. Okay, got it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so clean is uh, was four minutes at the time. Uh, the incremental builds with Swift uh, were not working really well. So the four minutes were happening more often than than incremental builds that were around 15, 30 seconds. And so yeah, with that and the thing that uh, with this um, compile time you cannot do things like uh, TDD. And we decided to, that it was time to start splitting the app so we could work on smaller projects, right? How big is, was the team uh, at that time? Um, I think we were six when we started uh, modularizing the app. So basically, the main problem you were tackling is the compile time performance, right? Rather than sort of a code organizational, you know, people changing files, each other's files. It wasn't that, right? It was more about the compile time. Yeah, the thing is that we try to decouple all the all the codes uh, from the beginning. So um, it was it was uh, really well organized, and we could work on our own stuff without you know um, and getting on the steps of someone else. Okay. So what was your first sort of take on that first approach? What did you do? What we did was uh, with uh, so. Let's say that we then um, we we wanted to do this for a long time, um, but it's like there there is not time to make that first step that gets you on that direction, direction right. And also the company was um, you know switching the um, the focus real quickly, real quick. Uh, you know what. Uh, what happens on the startups that uh, you have to be focused on features all the time and and the direction direction changes super quickly so the thing is uh, we didn't have much time to work on it and and at the end it bites us um, and it bites us because uh, there was like a compiler back on on Swift um, well it, it was not a bad the thing is that when when uh, this, uh, what, what the Swift compiler does is that it, uh, or, or what it was doing, it was taking all the Swift files of a target, or of a project, and it puts all of them on the same command. So what happens is that if you have um, a lot of files, let's say uh, 2,000 or 3,000, and your project is not on the root uh, uh, of your computer, is you know it has an indentation, and then you you reach the Unix command limit of your computer, right? And that makes the the compiler fail. And so this starts happening to us first locally to one of our uh, of our colleagues because he had the breaks, you know, like uh, uh, with uh, a lot. A lot of folder indentation, and then um, what we did was to just chart the path where the project was. Uh, a quick fix, which worked. Um, I would have, I would have never thought that that would be an issue, actually. Right? <laughs> You'd think, I don't know, like the process of compiling takes too long, or or like it runs out of memory locally on the machine, or something like that, right? But the, you know, the, the not the input for the command that not being enough, that that's crazy. That's just crazy, right? I mean, you, you think that thing 
like that command might like could t- i don't know take a folder as an input and then recursively kind of figure out all the files to compile right or something like that yeah and and we tried everything uh, like you know doing a symbolic link from from the desktop to the to those files and things like that and at the end X, xcode don't, doesn't care it's like uh, it's okay uh, i don't care about this symbolic link i'm just going to take the the absolute path of every file like every file has ah, its absolute path. So it's basically the number of characters allowed for the input that that you reach yeah. that. Oh wow! Yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's like your path. If you put your project somewhere, especially if you put a project somewhere deep in your one of your folders in your computer, right? Then your path mm-hmm. for each file extends. Exactly. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That, okay. that's, that's why to, to fix it we put the project on a sorted path. And, so about and how many files, so how, about how many files did you have when it, when it happened? Uh, I don't remember. Uh, oh. uh, yeah, um, I don't know. It was a mixed code base of OGPC and Swift. And we were, you know, doing all the new stuff in Swift and trying to migrate uh, from OGPC to Swift, some code. So I don't recall right now how many files. But I have um, the the radar I opened to Apple um, was like two thousand files, and that but the thing is that I put those two thousand files on a um, uh, five uh, folder hierarchy uh, of deepness, you know, um, and that makes the project fail. Did Apple ever respond? Uh, so, so. One time, talking with uh, with an engineer on the uh, on the labs, uh, he told me that they fixed like the the fix was not uh, published, but one team fixed it because it was happening to them, and that fix didn't was not released to to the rest of the people. Okay, so they he didn't. Tell me anything. Um, he just told me, mm, yeah, maybe it's going to be fixed at some point, but I don't know when. I see. Life sucks. Deal with it, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So what, what, so what did you decide to do after that then? Kind of what was the first um, approach to solve it? So the first approach was to shorten the path, but then it started happening to, on, the, on the CI um, server. And... And so uh, we like we were using BitRise, right? Um, well, actually, we were using BodyBuild uh, when that happened, and then we migrated to um, BitRise. And well, the thing is that it does it. Uh, we it doesn't matter which uh, service you are using; you are going to be hit anyway. And then we could keep working on our own while one team was trying to fix it. And and what we did was to make a plan on how we were going to start, uh, you know, extracting models or, or files from the app so we don't hit that, uh, that bug again. So um, what, what was the idea there, though, behind that? Like, if you, let's say you have 2,000 files, right? And then you take 10 of them. And let's say, you know, if you take out 10, that fixes the problem. Then you move those 10 to a new module and then when at the compile time instead of having those 10 files in the list of the input you'll have the module instead or how does it work yeah exactly so uh, how xcode works is that it compiles each target separately so if you move some files from one target to the, to another one then you are going to avoid that bug and and that's what we did uh, our project was a mix of uh, CocoaPods. Well, we had a uh, CocoaPods as dependency manager, and we moved some some files to a development pod, and that made us, you know, um, keep working. But the thing is that since there are nine iOS developers working on the same project, um, we were all adding a lot of code every day and every week. So we hit again the back quite often. And so what we did is uh, think of how we would like to have the project uh, modularized, like which, like on an ideal work, 
world, right? Um, how we would like to have the project made. And that was uh, with several um, models for some layers, like, um, you know, like the data layer, uh, API layer, and, and then some feature models, um, which, is, uh, which are, for example, payments or delivery or um, uh, item catalog, things like that. Um, but again, we didn't have enough time to invest on it on this. On, on one side, we really worked to try to decouple stuff and to try to have everything separated. But at the end, when you try to really uh, split the stuff, you know, to take uh, a chunk of files or, or code from your project and move it somewhere else, you realize how much dependencies you have behind it. And, and that by does again. Right, yeah, it's always, when you have one target, one monolith code base, right? You don't realize how everything's coupled and interconnected. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, so what you, would you guys decide to tackle first? With which layer? Yeah, so um, since uh, the, the easiest one was going to be the API, because um, we had, you know, like all, all classes for all the API and all the files for their requests and endpoints uh, separated. Uh, it, was, it was going to be like, take that folder with everything inside and move it somewhere else. And then it was more or less like that. So we started with that uh, layer, which was, which was an horizontal layer. Okay. So that, that's sort of ba basically, so uh, how, did you, how did you technically do that? Like you said, you used CocoaPods, right? So did you create a new CocoaPod target within that, uh, what is it, pod file, right? And then that target is, a, I think there is a flag or something to make it a, what do they call it, binary target or library framework target, right? And then you move files to that new folder that it creates and it creates a new uh, Xcode project, right? Yeah, but we have one problem, which was that um, we, were, we were using two dependency managers on our project. We were using CocoaPods and we were using Cartage. The reason is that um, um, right now you can, you can, like, uh, you can have uh, dynamic frameworks and static libraries uh, on CocoaPods. But at the time, uh, you could not. And also, there, there, were no, there was no way to create the static libraries for Swift. So we could then make all our pods, all our, our GPTC pods, uh, change from a dynamic framework to a static library. Sorry, the other way around from a static library to a dynamic framework because that will make the, the start time of the app increase a lot, which was a real problem with iOS 9, iOS 10, and I think they fixed it more or less on iOS 11. The, um, and the, the problem is that dynamic frameworks make startup time uh, slower. Yeah, because, right? because I, I, the link in the start on time. Start on time. Yeah. Like the actual startup time for the end binary for the user, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so because of this problem, we decided to integrate, we had CocoaPods and we decided to integrate Cartage. So we could have all the GPC libraries and CocoaPods, which were compiled as static libraries. And then all the Swift libraries on Cartage, which were compiled as dynamic frameworks. And this way, with only three li Swift libraries, we were not going to increase the start time of the app. And so with this approach, we could then, you know, if we wanted to move um, uh, a part of the app, which is on Swift, we could move it to CocoaPods, for example. And, and to make a compiled binary with Cartage will, will make it really hard to work on it. Like it iterates fast and move, um, move things from uh, the app to the model and uh, change things on that model because you have to recompile again, right? That binary. So what we did is uh, we created a new project uh, within the workspace. Um, so at the end, what you have is one target for the app, 
another target for the um, for the new project you created with that module, and another target which is the um, the the cocoa pots target. Okay, makes sense. So, like after like first um, batch of work, uh, how many uh, modules did you split your uh, project into? So when it um, went from eighteen minutes to like four minutes, like how many, how small, or how many modules have you split? Split. Well, um, the um, the work I did to reduce the compile time from eighteen minutes to four minutes uh, was mainly on um, changing the um, the build settings of the project and changing code within the app. At that time, we weren't really working on splitting the app. We weren't working on modularization. Because actually, if you modularize uh, on the way we did, which is uh, creating projects um, and, and targets in, in your own workshop, uh, in your own workspace, sorry, um, then what you are going to do is uh, maybe increase a bit the compile time. Um, because it has to go one by one compiling each and then linking them. Oh, so, well, but it caches it though, right? I, I thought it was kind of smart, smart enough about it. And if you don't, you launch it once, it compiles all, every project, but then say you don't touch, like you change some files and main target, app target, let's say, right? But you didn't touch any other module. It wouldn't be compiled the modules. We just use the cached binary, isn't it? Mm, no? that, that's how it should work, but it doesn't, doesn't really happen. Um, especially if, if you work uh, with, without binaries, right? Um, well, I mean, if you work with binaries, it's not going to get uh, recompiled. I see. So in a way, it was sort of a little bit back to kind of originally you wanted to tackle compile time, right? But then you start to modularize sort of in hopes to improve that, but also to fix that Unix command problem, right? But then it, it mm -hmm. kind of reduced the compile, or sorry, increased the compile time instead. <laughs> Interesting. Exactly. Okay. Did you, um, so wait, but I thought you solved that as uh, though ultimately, right? You kind of, you know, improved the modules so that the compile time doesn't improve. Or am I mistaken? Well, the, the compile time um, um, improvement happened before. Uh, I, I, I know that the, the optimization thing. Yeah, yeah. But after mm -hmm. the modularization, sort of the ultimately what you came to, uh, the, the structure of modules and your project, did, did it help with compile time or not really? We were more or less on the same. Um, so before... Um, I'm not. I'm no longer working at the company, but at the time I was, uh, it was taking two two and a half minutes for me uh, for a clean build. Okay, it's not that bad actually. That's, yeah, that's actually really really great. Yeah, considering how uh, how you made it made it faster. Um, and when when and when you mentioned like so you have other you make uh more Xcode projects inside your workspace. And if, you, and if there are many uh, targets that it, it's bad for compile time, right? So what our company or, or what our team does is, um, so, so I, I, I don't know like deep into it, but uh, we had like a workshop late, uh, late workshop recently. And like how, how the app is built is, um, so it's like, it's like, uh, it can be visualized uh, in in like a tree structure. So first there's app, and then the second layer is like the dependencies of all the of the apps, right? All the dependencies, and then another layer is there's um, uh, there are uh, libraries that depend. There's also dependencies of the first dependency, right? So like uh, compile time is dependent on each layer's um, maximum build time, compile time. Yeah, compile time. So you have to identify which uh, layer is, uh, which library is taking the most compile time. And if you reduce it, the overall uh, compile time will be reduced. So you have to break it up uh, in a way that 
in a way that uh, uh, each dependencies. So like you have to uh, you have to um, like distribute right distribute code well so that like not one library is too big because even if you uh, make even if you uh, modularize other features if there's one big library then there's like really no point of modularizing because that library will take all the build time. Hey folks, are you trying to figure out how to stay current? Maybe you're wondering what's gonna come out during WWDC and you'd like to watch it with some of the other developers out there in the world. Well, I'm putting on iOS Dev Remote Conf. That's at iosremoteconf.com. A few years ago, my dad was just in a position where he needed me around a lot more than I could be. And so I couldn't travel to all the conferences that I wanted to go to. And so I started doing these remote conferences. And then it turned out that we had the COVID-19 thing hit and people couldn't travel or weren't willing to risk it now. So you can come out, you can stay current. Uh, we're going to have a WWDC watch party. We've got some great people coming to speak like Uncle Bob Martin, Ray Wenderlich, Alex and Sujin from the iFreak show. So definitely come check it out. You can go get tickets at iosremoteconf.com. Uh, that's iosremoteconf.com. So Jin, I'm, I'm curious though, like, but even if you break down that huge fat library into let's say three smaller ones, the, 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 every single file there still got to be compiled anyway, right? So you're sort of spreading it rather than improving. Because, right? Like, if if that makes yeah. sense. Oh yeah, I think I think so. But but they're like, um, they can be in uh, done simultaneously, right? Right. So instead of like, ah, yeah, let's I say see. nine thousand code, like uh, in. So if you split them into like equal three thousand, three thousand, three thousand, then then ideally, the the compile time is one third. I think. I see what you're saying. So this is a parallelization of it. Okay, that that makes sense. I haven't thought about it. I thought there was a way, and, and uh, Luis, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I don't think you mentioned that in your talk, although I think I really just skipped through the last part very quickly, uh, skimmed through it rather. Uh, th <laughs> there was a way when you structure and modularize in those little framework targets there was a way to turn your uh, framework into a binary or something like that where you don't really kind of treat it, you don't really see the code anymore so it doesn't have to be recompiled every time and that improves the final target's compile time, right? Yeah, that, that, that's, uh, that's the best you can do to improve your compile time. Um, to you know, split your code into a model and then compile that model as a framework and then link that framework into your project. Um, there's a downside, of course, um, which is when, whenever you want to change something there, you have to recompile that framework and, and link it again. Um, if you use uh, CocoaPods, ROM, or Cartage, uh, it will do it for you, mm, kind of. Um, otherwise, you have to do it by yourself. And that's what they, what, what, and it's called static framework, right? Not the dynamic. Uh, well, you, you can um, get uh, each, each uh, like the one you want. Um, because right now we can have uh, Swift static libraries and Swift static, Swift static frameworks. So you can compile whatever you want, whatever you need, um, and then include it in your project. Okay. There was also something uh, at the, the end of the talk that you covered the as you start to split uh, split things into modules and you moved models in one and then API layer in another, then then you said you had to they some of them depended on each other, so you had to extract interfaces in order for them to kind of get glued together and use each other. So can can you talk about that? Because that's it's um, a very complex problem, right? And there's an interesting way you tackled it with this factory resolver, if you will, right? That 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 block. So I have not seen that before. Yeah. So yeah, uh, we had for yeah. Uh, this is the one example I did on on my talk. So we had the user framework, for example, and we had the item framework. 
And the thing is that item was depending on user and user was depending on item, right? A cycle dependency. And, and you have this problem where you cannot initialize one with, with, without the other because we were injecting all the dependencies of each module on the on init time. And so what, what we did was, uh, okay, let's change this um, parameter to not be exactly the type, but to be a closer, right? So if you use the auto-closer feature of Swift, what you are passing is not the actual object, but something that will be the object. And that way we sorted it out. So how does it work on the, I, I, I get how it works on the code level. Like you have your, I think in the example you had uh, user object initializer, right? And it mm -hmm. takes, uh, what was it? Item or something like that or other way around. Mm -hmm. And then what, should have been or probably was before in the one one monolith target like it was literally was a in, initializer that takes a users users object initializer that takes a item parameter and of type item right mm -hmm. and then you assign it as a property in that cons uh, initializer but that so to but instead what you did that parameter item parameter is now something else, which is a closure that returns the item instead later in that object when you need to access uh, item, right? Exactly. So yeah, it. that's the so first thing before we, I want to ask about something else, but before we get there. So that, does that make your property then now in user for the item, it's always that closure, right? Exactly, yeah. So sort of every time you, to, to access the item object inside of user object, you have to invoke that closure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so it sort of makes it kind of like an optional thing, right? Or, wait, no. But then closure always returns the object, right? So it's not optional, really. Depends on, on what you're... Well, I, I, I know, I mean, in this simplified example. Interesting, okay. Mm -hmm. All right, so I see that. But then with, um, with this modules, modularization then, then you replace that with a item interface, right? Yeah, so uh, every, every model has, um, has a way of... Uh, it is exposing an API, and then they also have an interface. So, and the thing is that the, uh, all the interfaces are uh, separated on another module. Uh, that way, all the modules know about all the interfaces of all the other modules, but don't know about the implementations. Right. So, let's say you have again, for the sake of sim simplifying the example, you have a module that contain module one, it contains user object, user object type, right? Mm -hmm. Then you have module two, it contains item type. So those would mm -hmm. be the concrete classes, class implementation or, or, well, yeah, let's say class implementation, implementations. And then do, do you have module three and module four? and each one of them contains those protocol interfaces. One would be protocol interface for the user, another one is protocol interface for the uh, item. And um, then when, when you glue, module one refers to module four, and then but that contains the interface for the item, and then module two refers to module three that contains the interface to, for user, right? Um, am I yeah. overly? No, 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 that, that's okay. I, I, think, I think you can do it that way, but we wanted to make it simpler. Um, so what we did is, um, um, so we, we went through a long process, right? Two-year two process to, to get where, where we were, where we are. And, and at the end, what we have is we have the main project with all the, let's call it legacy, 
but uh, it's not really, really legacy. And then we have all the projects, uh, all the Xcode projects for every module we, we created, and the pods project of CocoaPods, because at, at this point we've removed garbage and all the dependencies are in CocoaPods. And the thing here, the, the, the key is that all the modules and the app, all of them, all the targets, uh, see, can see the, the pods in CocoaPods, the pods in the pods target. So um, every Xcode project that is a module um, is exposing its own implementation. So let's say item module, which is the class, and let's say um, user model, which is also a class. But we have item protocol, which is the interface, okay? And then we have user protocol, which is also the interface of the user uh, model. And those two interfaces are in the same model, which is a development pod. So this way, all the models, all the Xcode projects uh, see the module, which is uh, the model interfaces, which is supposed exposing all the model interfaces. That way they can use that interface, but the one that is injecting the actual model, the created implementation is the main app, which knows everything. Does it make sense? I think, yes, it's, it's a bit hard to kind of yeah, picture, but no, I think I get it. So the, they're like in this specific case, there's these two models, they're in the same module. And then those concrete class implementations, they're internal, right? To that module, they're not exposed, but then the interfaces for them are public. Is that how technically, like, like public keywords in Swift and then another one is... Yeah, well, technically everything will be public. Uh, mm -hmm. The implementations, the classes, I mean, uh, user, user module and item module, which are, let's say they, they are classes and, and they are the implementations um, of, the, of those modules. Those are public, uh, uh, public classes, okay? And then user protocol and item protocol, which are the interfaces, are also public. But the thing is that the interfaces are in one model, and then user is other model, and then item is other model. And item and user cannot see each other. They don't know, they don't know uh, about the other one. But user knows about user interface and item interface, and item knows about user interface and item interface. That makes sense. Okay. Do you have then, do you have like factories or something like that for those models so that technically the factory returns back user interface, object that implements user interface, but under the hood, it actually returns back the user object? Yeah. 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 This is what we call dependency manager, which is um, um, the kind like, is the, the factory that links everything in the app. So the app knows all the module implementations, all the models on, in, and its implementations, and knows all the interfaces. So it's the one that links the models between them uh, and what they need, right? Because, um, for example, all the models need the API client and they only know about the interface of the API client. So um, the app creates the, the API client, the actual, the actual model, and then injects it on every each one of them. That Do you sense. use any uh, specific uh, library or architecture for dependency injection? No, no, no. Um, we, we just use the um, init, injecting by init, you know, but passing everything on the init. We we explore, you know, like things like Swift Swiftjack, Swiftjack, I think. Swiftjack. Um, like yeah, yeah, and things like that. But um, at the end, we decide that what we were doing. Um, I mean, like we were, we only need this simple thing where we were passing everything uh, on the start was enough. 
did you have a case of um so those would be those examples we talked about would be uh, a mod module that contains domain models and then a module that contains API client, right? Those are uh, sort of lower level dependencies, if that makes sense. They're, uh, they're not features, right? But then you had some, uh, I think you mentioned you had some modules that contain entire features. Did you have a case of two modules uh, depending on each other or referring in some fashion? Or how did you, how did you solve that, if you had that? Yeah, so um, we differentiated the, the models in two ways. One is uh, vertical models, which uh, are the feature models. And then the horizontal models, which are models like um, splitted by layers, right? So an example of an horizontal model will be the API client. An example of uh, a feature model will be delivery, for example. And as I said before, uh, all the models, for example, needed um, the API client, which uh, was injected um, on init. But then um, the delivery model uh, needed uh, needed to know about users, right? Because it's, uh, it needs the user input to uh, to show the address, for example, where the the um, the package is going or is coming from. And uh, for that, what we used was the auto-closure thing I, I explained, um, we talked before, uh, to create the user model and then put it inside delivery, right? In, in this case, um, user is not using delivery, um, but... Um, I don't recall exactly right now the case where one uh, feature model was in, was needing the other one and the other way around. But it was something like um, item needs user because it's showing, um, oh yeah, right. So the thing is um, every feature framework, every feature model uh, has everything. Uh, from the data layer to the UI, right? So all the screens are inside the model. And imagine that you have to show the profile, the user profile, and then the user profile has all the items. So if you want to tap on an item, then you are going to go to the item screen. And for that, user uh, has to request to show that screen, right? So it has to know about, about the item. And then the item inside has the user profile. Um, so at the end, from the, from the item, you also want to show the user profile. I see. Yeah, so that, that's, that's where um, we had the cycle dependency, for example. Hmm. Uh, I usually saw sort of in big monolith apps, resolution of that, usually the app target would be the medi mediator, basically every module only talks to app target through delegate protocols or something like that. And then that would be the thing, maybe then passing things in be between two modules or coordinating something between them, things like that. What would you have done now sort of in retrospective after you went through that whole experience, what you would have done differently and maybe for a new project that's potentially going to be 700,000 lines of code or more, how would you tackle it? How would you approach it now? Uh, I will create all the models right away. Okay. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't wait uh, to, you know, uh, extract all the, all the files from one model to put them on another one. That's the, the hardest part. I actually kind of agree. Yeah, the other day, I, I, the other day I was like building some little app for myself uh, it's probably not going to be even published but i'm i might use it only right it's just myself but uh yeah i was like kind of splitting networking stuff and then i had some local storage logic yeah just quickly create a new little cocoquad even though it's a small code base but then it makes it so clear i don't mix things up and now i have this little nice storage 
framework effectively that I can then reuse in every other part of the app. So pretty convenient. And then my TDD works right away because I'm forced to have protocols. Great. Yeah, I agree. Like it's one of those, it sounds like, um, you know, usually you go and learn about all of those great architectures and vipers and stuff. And now you want to use it everywhere because it's a hammer and everything sounds like a nail. It looks like a nail now, but I think it, and you probably likely shouldn't do that, right? Just stick with MVC for uh, in the beginning and then introduce Viper or something like that when you grow. But I think this is an exception, like with uh, modularization, you would probably benefit from the get-go, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if I were going to create a personal project or a small one, maybe I will just split by layers, uh, layers. Uh, not get too much into feature models, but yeah, um, I will. I will try to split everything right away since the beginning. Yeah, that's actually a great point. You're right, because it's a simpler way of going about it, and it's best bang for your buck at first, right? Just do the layers, because you don't really know yet what are your vertical feature modules. Likely, you don't know yet. Okay, yeah. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. Personally, the best thing about like modularizing is just um, it makes it makes me think about the dependency graph, right? So like Luis, at the beginning, when you try to pull this out, you found out how, how many like dependencies it had. So if it's modularized, you have to think about it. Like you have to think what to make public, what is internal and all sorts of things. And I think that itself like accounts for a lot of, uh, like a lot of good code uh, design. Right? Yeah. So that was a, that was a good, yeah. Personally, that's, that's like number one thing, good, one, the number one good thing about it. I also have a question for Luis. So, mm -hmm. I also think, I think like scaling, like experience of scaling and growing is really valuable, right? So you mentioned you, uh, while you were at the previous company, the team grew from two to nine developers, right? So I think that's a like really unique experience. Like not many people ha can have that, like their team growing like 300, 400%. So I want to know like how like I want to know like what was the experience like how did it get so big like how like is it like business growth or like was it like a like like technical decision that we needed more team or like and how what and what was your experience on that um good question um yeah there, there's uh too many things to say. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe you should come for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the thing is that um, when, well, for, first I have to say that I was, I, I jumped into the lead position without much knowledge of how to be a lead. So first I had to more or less learn what a lead does. Um, and then you, you realize how complex are human relationships, right? How complex people are, how people is, how people are. And, and one thing I really, like, I, I didn't realize before and I had no idea is that how just one person changes completely the whole team. And it doesn't matter if that person is coming to the team or is leaving it completely changes the team um and that's one and that's something that really really impacted me 
Uh, on the other hand, in my experience, everyone just wants to, you know, um, get better and and put the best of, of himself. So uh, I think you always have to be positive of, of your team and always expect good intentions. Um, how, how we went from two to nine. So I, I have to say that my... Uh, my opinion on on if we had to to you know hire a new a new person or not um, didn't have much weight um, because it was most more a uh, company decision right they were like um, so we have one person for delivery one person for um, uh, liquidity which is how fast the items sell for example. And then we have one person for platform and another person for uh, growth. And then we we have to integrate a new vertical, which are in-app purchases, or we have to uh, we have to work on the chat because um, it's a main feature, and and we have to um, create a really good experience on a core feature, right? And that's what that's what make the, the team grow. That and the money. Um, if the investors don't put you money, you cannot hire anyone. Yeah. And um, so, so, um, so like, uh, when you like divide those those people, like one person for this vertical, one person for this vertical, then uh, how did you uh, manage like uh, like coding convention or like how do how did you keep the code like um, because like. Like, did you have code reviews then, like, among your team? How how, yeah, how does it work? We 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 do code we do code reviews um uh, to all the requests. So every so let let's start by saying that all the code is in the same repo um, on iOS. I mean, and the iOS project uh, for the iOS project, all the code is on the same repo. So all the pull requests are on the same on the same place. And then if you want to get one pull request merge um, in develop, it has to be approved by, by two peers, by two, by two colleagues. Um, we use um, several, several stuff to make sure um, we try to create quality code. So the first one was um, we had some rules on what has to be test for sure. And then, what should we test? Uh, on the other hand, we uh, we had Swiftlint, which uh, may like showed all the rules on on you know, uh, linting and and style uh, for the code. So you don't have to waste your time saying on a pull request that you um, have an extra space here and you are missing a capitalization there. Um, and then on the other hand, you have to have you know this uh, a CI server that runs your projects and runs all the tests, so uh, it makes sure uh, anything breaks. Um, on the other hand, we had all the API tested, and then we had a snapshot test for all the all the views. All the views had a snapshot test. Snapshot is did you use the the Facebook one the snapshot test? I use snapshot test. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, we use the Facebook one, which uh, is actually now owned by Uber. Yeah. Uh, Luis, have you, at the sort of end of the journey, when you kind of end, uh, ended up with this uh, set of modules, right? Have you considered, were you happy with, as a team, with uh, a CocoaPods as a tool for that? Or have you considered other solutions? There's, for example, Bok, right, out there from Facebook, I think, as well, that's sort of geared towards that grand modularization for your project. Um, so um, we were really happy with CocoaPods. I think the people behind CocoaPods uh, do a really great job. Um, and I think... When Apple introduced uh, Swift Package Manager, they they did it on a poor way because that made 
people, you know, relax on the rest of uh, dependency managers, right? It's like, oh, um, Apple just are lock uh, Cardite and CocoaPods, so um, we are good. Uh, we can, you know, start working on this because uh, it's not going to matter uh, in a couple of years. And the thing is that Swift Account Manager that didn't, didn't get a lot of love um, since it was released. So for now, my dependency manager tool of choice is CocoaPods. Swift Package Manager is getting better, but uh, the, the amount of features that you can get uh, out of the box with CocoaPods uh, are not met by Swift Package Manager, for example. Uh, on the other hand, I'm back in Basel, try to overcome the um, the way on how Xcode compiles, right? So what they do is they create artifacts uh, from your builds. So whenever um, whenever you try to compile something, they, it checks uh, if there are artifacts made already for that. So it, ha it, do it doesn't have to recompile that part. And I think what happens with Basel and Back is that you really have to have a big team or a platform team really dedicated to tools and to providing a good developer experience uh, to the rest of the team. Otherwise, getting into, into you know, something so big, uh, it's going to cost you a lot uh, of, of uh, troubles and headaches. Yeah, I agree. That's kind of what I noticed as well. Both like Balk and CocoaPods, they do have their own DSL, where you still have to learn one, right? Let's say you don't know CocoaPods, Bundle, Gem, Ruby style, DSL. You got to learn it, but it's way smaller, simpler. And there's less to understand. It's sort of more taken care of for you, right? With Balky, like as you mentioned, you have to know about this artifacts and how it's all structured. And then there's this declaration manifest, whatever they call it for each module. It's, uh, it's a lot. I'd, I'd say like for a new project, right? What we talked about now for like a small app that you just a single developer on, this doesn't make sense to use, right? For modularization, but then CocoaPods does. And kind of the same to your to your point. I agree with um, Swift Package Manager. It's like it's not good enough yet, but also I think another problem with it, it's a built-in tool, which means it's not gonna. Even though it's open source, right? Just like Swift is open source, but then you cannot just decide to update to the next version super quickly in your project. You're locked, right? Like. Only with new Xcode versions, you'll get the new Swift Package Manager versions. That's it. With uh, CocoaPods, on the other hand, you can update, downgrade, do whatever you want, right? Because it's a third-party external thing. And then it just happens to interact with your Xcode project and like make it for you. So, yeah. yeah. I, I, I guess I'm trying to th throw a stone at Apple a little bit in this case because, like, so what if it's Apple's tool? It doesn't make it better. <laughs> anyway. Cool. Uh, so, so Jin, do you have any other questions for Luis? Yeah, just one small question. So for about the platform team that uh, you mentioned, that, so I'm also curious about that. So is platform team uh, developers like iOS engineers or are they from different backgrounds? Um, so, um, I, I mentioned it, but the thing is that we didn't have a platform team uh, oh. at my company. I really wanted to have one, and I really wanted to, uh, to be ourselves. So, at the end, um, all the you know, ecosystem for iOS was managed, or for mobile, was managed by, by ourselves, right? Um, which was happening already for the CI server, for example. Um, for example, Wacken had a, a platform team dedicated to all their tooling, but that platform team didn't was not you know 
um, working on the CI server for mobile. Uh, it oh. was ourselves. It was Android was managing their part and iOS was my managing uh, also their part. But I mean, if I think if a team is bigger than eight, nine, ten developers, it should have a, a platform team. Yeah. Okay. All right, guys. Let's move on to picks. Uh, so, Jin, you want to go first? Um, yeah. So nowadays, all I do is uh, work, exercise, and Netflix. So um, I just have one pick on Netflix. So I've uh, recently I I uh, got interested in you know like like uh, like investment, like not serious, but like just asset management. So since I so I wanted to like uh, save money, stuff like that. And I've been like watching some YouTube channels and I, I, I'm not sure if it was like a serious uh, comment or like a funny comment. Uh, one of the guy uh, like recommended uh, billions, <laughs> uh, billions. Uh, since it's, it's about like a hedge fund manager and like a U.S. attorney. So I started watching and and soon realized I, it had nothing to do with like helping me about asset management or investment, anything like that. But, but I like the show and yeah. So my pick is billions on Netflix. I'm all on, I'm almost at the end. So uh, I'm kind of sad and I want more episodes. Yeah. That's all. Okay. Uh, my pick is a book. It's called soft skills. Um, it's by John Sonmas. It's fairly old-ish. I think it's, uh, oh, well, not as bad, actually, 2015. Uh, it talks about everything but coding for coders. Basically, well, soft skills, right? Uh, how to talk to other people, right? How to, how to communicate, how to put together a resume, how to, like, sort of what, Fitness-wise, probably what you want to uh, think about and care, you know, sitting in the chair all day. Uh, then, and all the way down to, oh, you're, well, Sujin, what you mentioned, finance, investing, right? What, do, what are you doing with your paycheck? You know, or leftovers of it. Uh, so, it's, I, I, I read it long, long time ago. Uh, well, I guess 2015, not, not that long, but it, it was... It was, uh, I liked it. It was very helpful, useful at the time. Still, I think you used some resume picks from, from that. So, so that's my pick. Luis, cool. you got anything for us? Um, yeah, I actually have three picks, if uh, you don't mind. So um, I have one show, one book, and one documentary. Um, the show is zero, zero, zero. Uh, I just watch it on Amazon Prime. and. And it's a really good one. And it, it's so it's about how an Italian mafia family try to bring um, a drugs cargaman uh, um, package from Colombia to Italy. Uh, it's kind of the narcos of Amazon Prime. Really good. Um, the the commentary is objectified, um, so it, it's uh, it talks a lot on on design and the relationship of people with products, and and I really recommend it. It's really good to you know get a sense of uh, of design if you are interested in that. And the third pick is uh, the book, which is How to Win Friends and Influence People uh, by Dale Carnegie. I think it's Carnegie. Uh, it was right, like the first edition was written in 1937. And it's been, you know, getting republished over the years. And, and it's super recommended back book. And, I finally read it, and it's really good to um, better, you know, there are, there are those interactions with people that you, you try to do, uh, but then this book is like, 
gives you real examples. So uh, if you do this, you are going to, um, you know, make a conversation more interesting. Or if you do this, you are going to really see how interesting this other person can be. Right? And it's not, it's not selling you, um, uh, let's be fake and be interested to someone else. It's more like, um, show the real you, but on, on a way that is interesting to someone else. Um, yeah, really recommend it. I really like it. I, I also read it a long time ago. I couldn't finish it for some reason, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was, uh, sort of an interesting advice on, well, how to influence people, right? <laughs> And it uh, sounds very Machiavellian from the title, but it's not. I <laughs> know. <laughs> cool. All right. Uh, well, thank you, Louise, for com coming and having a chat with us. Uh, thanks to Jen. And um, uh, you, you guys, oh, yes, uh, Louise, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, um, I'm uh, really... Um heavy Twitter user, so uh, they can find me at uh, Las Corbe, um, which is like the L of my name and then my last name altogether. And then I just started um, my own blog uh, on my website, so I hopefully will write um, like, yeah, often or not, I don't know yet, but yeah. I'm I'm starting to do that. Great, and uh, you, you you guys can uh, follow this show on Twitter. It's at iFreaks, uh, and we actually even have a Facebook page. It's also iFreaks, Facebook slash iFreaks. Uh, yeah, and thank thank you everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thank you very much for inviting me. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.